Hey guys. Hey. Hey, what's happening? Um, before we record, can I can I talk to you guys about something? Yeah, what's up? Again? Yes, again. <laughs> God, queen of sensitive over here. So I gotta admit, something really, really weird happened while I was researching this this episode. Um, so I was starting like and I was like googling the topic and like randomly without expectation my iPad just shut off and wouldn't turn back on. Hmm. So I thought, okay, weird, maybe a technical problem, right? But then I started doing my research on my on my phone, and then all of a sudden, Wi-Fi stopped working and no service. That's weird. So then I thought, well, I'll just go to my, my Mac, right? And, like, that's fine. I'll do my research there. I turned it on, and it was running Windows. And, like, I know that, that they can do that now, but, like, it... Yours doesn't do that. Never. And nothing's working, which, as I would expect from a Windows device. But um, and there's the untimely death of your canary, too. Yeah. That was weird. And I didn't even have a canary, but I found one. I know. It was in the cage and everything in yeah. my room. And it was just dead. Yeah. Weird. Huh. Super, super weird. See, I had a weird experience, too, but it was a little different. When I was researching the topic, you know, King Tut, Brendan Fraser came into my room. He's let himself go. Did you also wake up with snake bite marks? Yes. How did you know? Weird. Yeah. Huh. Eric, what about you? Did you notice anything weird? No, you know, it's funny. Um, I didn't actually research this topic because I already know everything about it. A lot of freaking da. <laughs> Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Sarah Ashley. It's November. Mm-hmm. Sure is. Yep. Which we talked about last time. But there's just some certain, you know, chill in the air and smoke in the air and not the kind of smoke that you would expect, folks. Actual smoke, like from fireplaces, which is really, oh. really rare in California. Because California has had a lot of smoke. It's just been from the rampage and wildfires. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has. Yeah. And a lot from Humboldt County, but different kind of smoke again. Um, that's 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 year round. Yeah, yeah. pretty but much. But what is wonderful? Rain today. It actually rained today. <laughs> it rained, and nobody lost their minds. No, there were fewer accidents than one would expect. Yeah, that, <laughs> I, that I feel is the real effect of global warming is the fact that Californians are suddenly learning how to drive in the rain. I know, and it's that crazy. is truly the most inexplicable part mm-hmm. of global warming. Yep. It worries me. <laughs> really? It really does. Oh. Well, I mean, know. it's good that people aren't dying, but what's next? It does go to show that good can come out of evil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, how are you guys? I'm good. You're good? I'm doing awesome. I have two new nephews. You have two new nephews? I actually do also have a brand new niece. That's, That's right. Go. I have no new relatives to speak of. That so you know of. That you wow. Know of. <laughs> You're a joker. <laughs> <laughs> Who's been up to what? <laughs> so talk about your nephews. Yeah, I'll talk about them a little bit. Um, their names are Jameson and Lincoln. And they're totally adorable, super teeny tiny. Um, they're just at the time of recording. It's a little over two weeks old. And uh, they're awesome. And I'm not a, I'm not a big kid person um i prefer animals but boy howdy do i love these little guys they are so <laughs> freaking cute and i'm i'm beaming with anti-pride and i'm very happy to just borrow them and return them that's just really to good, clarify this second... is 
anti, as in I'm an ant. Yes. Right, pride, not anti-pride, as yeah, in like yeah, exactly. the opposite yes, of pride. thank you. And Shame. I'm also really happy because for a second I thought you said I'm beaming with antichrist. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Antichrist! <laughs> Did we? Oh my god, no, I'm calling my brother right now and telling him that we're changing him, what the boys are going to call me. <laughs> Antichrist. <laughs> did, did, I was like, did we misread the prophecies in the Bible? Did we? I'm so calling Mike right now. <laughs> or at least texting him. Okay. Continue. As Talk amongst yourselves. Talk amongst yourselves. Well, well hi, Eric. As of this time, we also have a two-week-old uh, Frida. Little Frida, that's her name. Yay! And she has two eyebrows, which is good. <laughs> We didn't name her because of the unicorn. Unlike Frida Kahlo. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, That's always and, good. And she's a sweet, darling little thing. So you That's know. wonderful. Vasquez women make good-looking kids. I know this. I got four of them. So, you know, now we got another. And it's a girl, of course, because that's all this family actually produces. Yeah. It's kind of like that movie, Children of Men. Yeah. Yeah, without the whole world dying and stuff. I think you should... You might just maybe just throw out this here. Maybe you should have your sperm checked. Just like... If there's an, maybe if you're completely devoid of Y chromosomes. Oh, no, no. We're done. You're done? We're yeah, done. Well, well, you're done. Yeah. I'm saying on a family level, maybe that's be something that should be looked at. Yeah, I don't care anymore. No. Okay. Well, that was an awkward tangent. <laughs> it is. But you know what else happened in November? Tell Back us. in 1922, the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Who's Tutankhamun? Shut up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is kind King of a... Tut. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, Eric's least favorite song, but you ever. know what? You know what, Eric? That In the was history a, of everything. It was a funny sketch. You just got to deal with it. It was a funny sketch. There is definitely humor present. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. Anyway, November 4th, 1922, the somewhat unexpected yet also expected discovery of King Tut's tomb mm-hmm. was made. And thus brought into the world the most complete find of a royal burial in Egypt right. ever and kindled an excitement in Egypt that hadn't been seen since nearly a hundred years earlier uh, with the, the excavations and, and recordings of Egypt during uh, Napoleon's failed attempt to take over the country. Right. Uh, and really it hasn't slowed down since then. Like King Tut is, even if you know nothing about ancient Egypt, you know the name. Sure. It's kind of like, you know, in Star Trek, right? Everyone has heard of phasers and Klingons. This is the same sort of thing. Right. I mean, and that just makes sense, too, because we have the most artifacts from his reign. It, and we also have the iconic face of his burial mask. You naturally will associate all of Egypt with King Tut because right. of that, right? Which is really funny because the actual period of time in which King Tut reigned was anywhere between 10 and 11 years. Right. Yeah. So, it was a very small reign, yeah. Yeah, he was a relatively insignificant pharaoh in the sense that he didn't have a lot of time to do much, and much of what is attributed to his reign was done by other people. But the legacy of King Tut and what it has actually done, not just for for Egyptology as a science, mm-hmm. but for the actual preservation <clears throat> of artifacts and yeah. tombs and archaeology itself in Egypt had to go through changes because of the way the excavation of King Tut was handled. Yeah. Obviously, it's significant for a lot of reasons, but uh, those are some of its biggest lasting impacts. Yeah. So before we get into this too heavily, should we just agree now that we're going to change the title to to Eric on Egypt instead of Nerds on History? Or are we just going to do that? <laughs> well, I mean, 
for the entire podcast, I think that's a bit okay. But acceptable. At least yes, with- I agree. I feel like I've been waiting three years to make this move, and maybe now is the time. <laughs> Good luck on your own. <laughs> Hi guys, this is Eric. Today we're going to talk about the Middle Kingdom. So Eric, tell me about this. Well, well it's funny you mentioned that, Eric. <laughs> yes, I could probably pull it off, but no, I would never be the same. And of course, our listeners would revolt, except from like three would actually probably like it uh everyone else would hate it because of course you guys would be missing it would be like i usurped and then tried to destroy your reign by wiping out your existence which um actually kind of happened to king tut so we'll talk about that okay we'll talk about that before we do that let's talk about why this is super relevant right now because yes it's an anniversary i mean that happens every single year right why haven't we talked about king tut before this well because we don't want to you know do all the egypt episodes at once because then well there's that then we're out of ideas But there's more news, because there's been recent discoveries in the tomb of King Tut that have come to to light. And I know our listeners are like, what? How is that possible? The the tomb has been fully excavated for years. Not. Yeah, seriously, not quite. Maybe. No one's 100% sure on this, but a certain gentleman by the name of Nicholas Reeve, who is a a senior archaeologist at Phoenix uh, Phoenix University. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) At the uh, University of Arizona, uh, he has come up with a a rather interesting theory based on some extremely high-resolution photos that have been taken inside the tomb. Because for those of you who did not know, the tomb hasn't actually been accessible for the past few years because it's been going uh, under some pretty serious restoration work. Mm -hmm. It just reopened in 2014 to the public and then also allowed for far more archaeologists to come in and and do research than they were allowed uh, in those in-between years when it was being closed off. How long was it closed off? Oh, gosh, I can't remember now. I think it's been about uh, maybe maybe four years it was closed up, I think. I want to say it happened in 2010, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, Regardless... The the opportunity now to come in and do some further research has been granted. And because, you know, f- photography technology advances almost as quickly as any other type of technology that's out there, the high-resolution photos that they've been taking mm-hmm. revealed that there is some deviation in the walls in the burial chamber, particularly the northern and the western wall. Mm-hmm. They don't look quite right. It looks like they are essentially covering a passage that leads into potentially another chamber. What? And when that news was released, it was, you know, pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, to the point that the Antiquity Ministry, which had more or less up to that point not really been willing to go along with this, they thought it was kind of a little out there, it was unlikely because Reeves is very uh, adamant in his thinking that this might also lead to the burial of the famous Nefertiti, which people have been looking for for a really long time. The Antiquity Ministry is not willing to com- to commit to anything like that, nor should they, in my opinion. Uh, they are, however, willing to go in and, and allow for further studies to be done around this, one that which they just completed and released the results for on November 6th, which is really exciting mm-hmm. uh, because they did use um, thermographic technology to go and notice that that spot in which Reeves is talking about there is definitely a huge temperature difference behind there and also uh, behind the western wall. Hmm. Far different than the surrounding areas on that same wall. Suggesting that there is not just solid rock behind there, but instead a chasm of some sort. Some sort of void exists in those two areas. Interesting. And 
one of them is quite large, the other is smaller, which would make a lot of sense if you had an auxiliary burial chamber or the primary burial chamber of this tomb, uh, and then another side chamber off with funerary items, almost certainly. Uh, you don't necessarily need a very big chamber for that, right? This is the biggest thing to happen in the Valley of the Kings uh, in, in quite a while. Yeah, uh, and, and probably good since Tut's <clears throat> discovery. No, I, I'd say KV-5, which was the discovery of the the super huge tomb uh, that was done. Oh, God, when was that? 93, I think. That one was the biggest event that had happened probably mm. since King Tut. But since then, this is another really major discovery. Okay. And the possibilities for what it means, you know, you can let your imagination run wild. The idea that Nefertiti could be buried there is plausible. How likely it is, we will have to wait and find out. Yeah. Reeves wants ground-penetrating radar to be brought in so they can really pinpoint exactly how you know big these chambers are, what their dimensions are, mm-hmm. if they're getting any hits from, any shallow hits from anything that's inside, meaning that the chambers are either empty or filled. Uh, and from there, who knows what they'll do. The question comes to mind do you think they would excavate? Because I know there is, as it was, King Tut's excavation was already controversial in the yeah. historical community as, uh, by by itself, you know? Well, here's the, here's the kicker, right? The majority of King Tut's tomb is not decorated. But the one room that is, is the room, of course, that has the, the side chambers off to it. Mm. So if you've ever seen a picture of King Tut's tomb, it's not hard to do. All you got to do is picture King Tut tomb, Google search, done. Uh, you'll see that the the register that has the actual painting on it is in the top half. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a, a big clear space of about 30% of the wall on, on the bottom that is uh, just kind of whitewash decorated. It's not it's not super fancy. So it's I don't think it's beyond reason to assume that a, a, a you know like a pilot hole could be drilled in there with an endoscopic camera fed through mm-hmm. to do a little looking that way. And if they found anything really impressive they might actually be willing to cut a section of the wall and carefully remove it that's possible are they going to do it i don't know i can't speak for the antiquities ministry it's been through a lot of changes ever since mubarak went bye-bye and all the changes in egypt recently Mm -hmm. but the leadership now because zahi hawas that gas bag is out and he's gone and i hate the man i met him he's a total jerk i think we've talked about this i met him once yeah when i was working at the egyptian museum really tell it tell us Eric, who is Zahi Hawass? Zahi Hawass was the former antiquity uh, minister of antiquities in Egypt, uh, who is a mediocre archaeologist at the best, who is far more involved with his public image than he is in the preservation of artifacts in Egypt. And this has all come out since his departure and since Mubarak's fall. Uh, that he, it's something that everyone in the archaeology community already knew is mm-hmm. that he was just a lazy sack of unpleasantness <laughs> and i'm sorry i feel very way strongly cl- way to keep it clean for the podcast though well, you know i know that we we, we do have the bleeps but i yeah. want to save them for when i get really excited well it's not right. his country so it's like he can probably kind of say what he wants and not be controversial yeah I, i'm not from egypt exactly so zahi hawas is yes yes uh anyhow yeah i've met the guy he kind of dismissed everyone around him and then proceeded to do a lecture where he uh, actually, the first 20 minutes were a special presentation he created called Zahi, King of the Pyramids, in which he talked about a day in the life of Zahi Hawass. Oh, my God. Yeah. And just so we understand why him being smug around you guys was kind of disrespectful is because the Rosicrucian Museum has, was it like the fifth largest collection? 
fourth. Uh, fourth largest collection in the United Egyptian States. And the United States. So I think, and the first being one of the, the, one of the Smithsonian institutions, right? Well, there's there there's the Met, which has the largest collection, and then there's oh, the, the Met is amazing. Yeah, there's York. the Field in okay. in Chicago, and uh, the Boston Museum of Art, I believe, has another rather enormous collection. So you know, it, yeah, I mean, we had, were significant west of the Mississippi. The Rosicrucian Museum was the largest collection of Egyptian artifacts in the United States. So the that we're getting off on a bit of a tangent here. The point is, Zahi's gone. And we don't have to put up with this crap anymore. And we have a much more open-minded and willing to work with foreign archaeologists ministry in place uh, that is, I'm hoping, going to really move us forward with this current research. Excellent. But that's really all we can say for now. And that's fine, because we'll update you as they update us and we get more information that comes mm -hmm. out. But I think let's talk a little bit about the guy himself, right? Yeah. Because so often the tomb gets all the love. And we'll talk a little bit about its discovery and its excavation and, and its, that significance. But let's also talk a little bit about Tut and his family. Yeah. <laughs> his because, family. Oh, I know. oh, boy. Gross. <laughs> Everybody loves incest. Okay. Um, <laughs> not a very popular song. <laughs> uh, as you might imagine. So, um, yeah. Or in other words, Oedipus, <laughs> if it were real. Yeah. <laughs> the real. Kind of. If it were real, and then it wasn't just your mom, but it was also <laughs> your cousin and your sister, and kind of maybe all at once, and things are all kind of mingled in there. <laughs> wow. Nobody knows who's touching who. No. <laughs> I'm just telling you, this is the nastiest family reunion ever. <laughs> For a clean podcast, that takes it about as far as we can take it. That's right. We can't go. In fact, that used up all of our bleeps, actually. <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> uh, so let's turn the clock back to approximately 1000s BCE, right? That's when King Tut reigned? Uh, Well, no. I mean, yes, uh, 1300 okay. would be much more approximate. 1332, if we want to get really specific... Uh, which we can, because we have records. <laughs> which, you know... <laughs> Sorry, that was one of the greatest moments this podcast has had. Um, <laughs> yeah, 1332 is, is the beginning of King Tut's reign. It's also the end of his father, the rather infamous Akhenaten, so, who was a member of the Tutmosite royal family. And these guys were kind of a big deal. These were the guys who, in the 18th dynasty, brought Egypt back from the brink of destruction, uh, kicked out foreign occupation in both the northern and southern portions of the country, reunified its leadership, its military, and actually created the very first standing army in Egypt. Up to that point, everything had just been conscripts. So these guys were poised to take over the ancient world, and they turned Egypt into this mega power that we know as the New Kingdom the golden age of Egypt. It's called all of these things because the wealth and power was never to be the same for this particular period of Egyptian history. So these, these Kings were huge, bigger than life. And their building projects were also enormous, uh, particularly in the area of Thebes, right? And, and ancient uh, Karnak or modern Karnak, ancient Thebes and uh, this, modern day Luxor, modern day Luxor. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the capital had been consolidated here now. And there's a particular god that was worshipped in this area known as Amun, who also kind of jumped to the top in terms of the hierarchy of gods. Right, he had been merged with Ra. Right? Yeah, exactly. You had this solar merger that had happened quite a while back, but was now very much more prominent. And with this, the priesthood of Amun also gained incredible wealth and power. And 
they allowed the authority of the king to remain, but this was something that could quickly go the other way if it wasn't kept in check. So all these subsequent rulers, many very famous ones, right? The Amunhoteps and the Tutmosides, right? And then you've also got Hapshatsu. This is all happening right around this time. And this is the end of that great reign. So Amunhotep III, the granddaddy to King Tut, was someone who was very much understanding that things could go really bad for the royal family if the power of Amun became a little too much. So he started to make some changes to the local deity in the area, also keeping it with a solar theme, but instead worshipping a god called Aten. And Aten was quite literally the personification of the sun disk, right? It was just a solar disk. It wasn't in the sense of these more recent de depictions of gods, which usually were either in some sort of animal form or in a human form with an animal head or just a straight up humanized form, right? This was kind of out of left field. And he took it just about as far as he was comfortable taking it. It was really his son, Akhenaten, Amenhotep IV originally, as he was known, who completely revolutionized and changed everything to the point where he changed his name to Akhenaten, right? One who is in service of the Aten. He actually deified his father upon his death and said that his father, Amenhotep III, is in fact the Aten and that he was the son of that god. Mm. And he created this whole cult around it that quickly outgrew, in comfort anyway, Thebes. Because here's all these images of these traditional gods and, and traditional temples that have been around for, you know, hundreds of years. So he says, well, screw this. I'm going to start my own capital, my own brand new one on virgin land that had never been built on before, which is, you know, pretty tricky in Egypt because there's only really a few good, super good locations. Right. But he finds a, a spot out in middle, what's known as Middle Egypt. It's now known as Armana or Tel El Armana. And he creates a capital city in the matter of like seven years. He wow. builds this thing quick. And he cuts a lot of corners to get it done. The, the architecture is a little skimpy in some areas. But you got to remember that most Egyptian cities were made out of mud brick. Right. You know, it was only the temples that were actually really being built out of stone. So when you consider that, actually, it makes a lot of sense. But um, he moves the capital and there is birthed our, our figure for tonight, right? Which is King Tut. So King Tut was born into a really wacky time. Right. And just to clarify, the Aten cult, that was the shift from a polytheistic to monotheistic religion, correct? Yes and no. It, it, was, an ex it was an attempt at pseudo-monotheism because well, the other gods were still being worshipped in the country, but the wealth of the country is being diverted from their temples and being put into this new capital. And so, you know, any church these days knows if you don't have any money, you can't keep the doors open. And that, that kind of happened. Most of the temples fell into disuse and ruin. The priesthood as a such also fell into disuse. And what was now a traditionally very powerful base of people in the country uh, were now more or less living in, in poverty. So you know, there was a lot of weird stuff going on for a country that prided itself on the continuity of its beliefs and traditions. This was this was huge. Yeah. And King Tut was born, as far as we can surmise, at Tel El Armana. So if he's born there, he never had this concept of the of the previous royal you know, way of living before this. And I think it very much structured and formed his his way of, of being throughout his whole life. 
but that's where this figure becomes very tragic. And and before I get there, I want to just highlight a couple other real key figures because Akhenaten didn't really do this all alone. He also had a very powerful mother by the name of Queen T, the the great royal wife to Amenhotep III, and she was a brilliant woman. She was extremely powerful. She knew what was going on. She assisted her son in the early parts of his reign, which were some of the most revolutionary. And after her death, it hit the family pretty hard. But there was another female figure who was also very prominent at the time. And that's, of course, the very famous Queen Nefertiti. Mm-hmm. Right? We've all heard the name. We've all seen the bust yep. uh, that was discovered at Tel El Armana in the workmen's uh, section in that little area where the artisans were known to have been kept. Yeah. In the workshop of a pharaoh, or not a pharaoh, excuse me, by an artisan by the name of Amenhotep. That's just what he went by. There were a lot of Amenhoteps at that time, just so you know. It was, <laughs> it was like John. It was a really popular name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this beautiful bust has been preserved to us. And that's one of the l- few things that we really know about Nefertiti is what she more or less looked like in a personified way, anyhow. No yeah, one an artistic representation. Yeah, we don't know if it obviously looked exactly like her. Yeah. We, we have other depictions of Nefertiti. <clears throat> and when you see her, she looks totally weird because in addition to changing the religion, they also completely drastically changed the art style. Mm-hmm. And it's no big surprise that some of these whack jobs who think that aliens built the pyramids exist. Because when you see Akhenaten and his family, they all look like aliens. They've got like big elongated exupial buns in the back of their head. And they've got like these super long arms of great big tummies that hang out. And their lips and eyes are all really made to look very odd. And tongues that with teeth that pop out and spit acid. and <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I'm sorry, wrong. Akhenaten was a xenomorph. Yeah. That's what we're trying to say. That's not true. Google it. You'll see for yourself. It's not bad. No, but it, the elongated skull is what you're talking about. Or the elongated part of the occipital bone you as you are referencing before. Yes. So, yeah, that's the... It looks more like the UFO alien. More, right, more exactly. Specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense then why, you know, stupid people might think this. So... <laughs> Sorry, I have absolutely no patience for... He has some really strong opinions on that one. (laughs) I have no patience for people who believe that the the pyramids were built by aliens and stuff. Ancient man was very smart and could do a lot of things on its own, didn't need outside alien influence. Well, also, Egypt was one of the most advanced ancient civilizations, if not the most advanced ancient civilization. Duh! (laughs) (laughs) So... Anyway, let's anyway. let's not get on that tangent. Yeah. We have so many that we could do. Yeah. It's like the River Nile itself. If you want, little... guys, if you want, just go back to our very first episode, Manga's Equation, and yep. you'll hear Eric talk about it. Yes. Ad nauseum. Uh, yes. Uh, so as not to nauseate anyone else, let's just get back on it. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, this was, this was a really powerful, very interesting, very strange family. But King Tut was really the bookend. He was pretty much it. And he was a product of some pretty serious incest, because for those of you who do not know this about the ancient Egyptian royal families, is they like to keep it all in the family. Uh, And the gods themselves, there was lots of legends and mythology that talked about them doing pretty much the same thing. So it was kind of their pass, right? It wasn't common. It wasn't to say that all the ancient Egyptians were having brother-sister marriages. This was something quite honestly reserved just for the royal family. And it was a way of keeping the power in one place and keeping your dynasty going as yeah. long as possible. And in some cases, marriages were more protective, more guardian-like. Yeah. But this was not the case. Right. There wasn't always incest producing the next king. That That is true. Sometimes they were more cousin marriages that were a little less genetically destructive. Other times they were consorts who were producing the next king. But in the case of, towards the end of dynasties in particular, we see a lot of incest going on. So... Akhenaten and Nefertiti 
had some relation to one another, a little more distant, right? So their daughter who was produced, Anoxan in Pa'aten is what she was born as, uh, was not nearly as afflicted as somebody like King Tut, who was, if you believe the current genetic results that are out there, definitely born of a brother and sister marriage. Yeah, if you look at the body reconstruction that they've like kind of created through like graphic imaging based on the scans that they've done of his body, he has like an overbite and a club foot and like wide girly hips. Yeah. And it and very awkward stature. <laughs> very yeah. and like kind of like and actually kind of an elongated head. A little bit. And that was actually quite common in his family. His yeah. his father, his grandfather before him, uh assuming, you know, his grandfather for sure we've identified his mummy. We know who he is. His father, that's still a matter of debate. But there's clear signs that this has been going on, not just with King Tut, that this was a product of Perhaps even incest happening earlier on. So unfortunately, he had already kind of been through the filter, so to speak. Yeah, he wasn't a particularly healthy child based on the the remains that we do have, right? Right. And he didn't live very long either. He was only 19, 20 or so when he died. Uh, he In his tomb was found over 100 canes uh, mm-hmm. of all different design, shape, and form. Some were elaborate and more ceremonial for the tomb, just for burial. Others had clearly shown signs of use, extensive use. And the clubbed foot was the primary reason for them. Yeah, he couldn't stand on his own. Not very easily, anyhow. If mm-hmm. he did, it would have been with excruciating pain. Mm-hmm. So he definitely needed to have the cane. Uh, that kind of deviation of circulation within the foot can also lead to bone necrosis, which is one Ugh. of the suggestions that he suffered from such horrible pain because the, the bone tissue is quite literally dying inside of his foot. Awful. So, yeah, he didn't have a very fun life. And upon the death of his father and him assuming the, the, the reign as king. At age 10, right? Age 9 or 10 around there, yeah. yeah. Again, difficult to pinpoint precisely, but roughly. He was far too young to be ruling on his own. And this has not happened before. There's lots of Egyptian kings who had advisors ruling for them. It was usually their mother who ruled in their place. In his case, his mother is nowhere to be seen. There's very little record that suggests anyone to even be a possible candidate for his mother. So that person was ruled out. Nefertiti at this point appears to have been dead. There's the suggestion of another king actually ruling slightly before him by the name of Smenkare. Do they rule out that Nefertiti is not King Tut's mom? Yes. Okay. And we do know this, again, based on DNA results, and some people dispute them. A lot of... Uh, but the they, archaeological... have, they haven't found Nefertiti's body, though, right? So no. How, no. Then, how, how can they rule that out? Because they have the body of a woman that they believe is his mother with oh, right, 99% right. certainty. So, right, 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 again, right. that's if you believe the DNA results. And mm-hmm. mitochondrial DNA that's, you know, over 3,000 years old is suspect at best. But technology has improved to the point where I'm actually on the on the believing side of this. Okay. Okay. So, again, just to, just to clarify, right, the king wasn't a healthy person and his reign was very short his advisors were really the ones who held the power. And because his father was such a a disturbing force to the people who would have benefited from the you know the priesthood being in power, that reversion from his changes to the way things were happened almost overnight. Uh, this Smenkare, this other pharaoh that probably ruled just before King Tut, there's very little actual evidence of this person's even existing, but nonetheless suggests that they may have continued Akhenaten's policies for a very short time, and it was really as soon as you had a kid who come on in that the advisors were the ones who said, okay, we're running the show now. Yeah, and let's go back to yeah 
Yeah. And and this is not unusual. This has happened kind of before, even within the same family, because Hepshatsut, the female pharaoh, who, you know, she went and did a great job as king. But upon her death, they had this then systematic, well, not exactly upon her death. It was a few years later. But they had this systematic erasure of her from history. The same thing was now going to happen to Akhenaten. Yeah. Well, it's also just a cycle within all of history, right? Whenever you have a radical change, generally speaking, within a generation or two, you have a kind of a shift back toward equ- equilibrium. Yeah. To the way, you know, some more balance between the way things were and the, the new changes that were supposed to be. Su- suggestions of bubonic plague in Egypt at this time are very strong. There's a lot of evidence for it. We know that it was in Syria not long before and uh, probably came in through the trade routes. And that had broken out even during the reign of Amenhotep III. And some people have suggested it was during that time that there was such mass death happening that Amenhotep III may have abandoned the traditional gods because of this. And again, this is all guess. Nobody knows this. And like the speculation that the gods had failed them or something? Something like that. Okay. That's, that's the theory. That's the idea anyway. But nobody really knows. What we do know is that the priesthood would have been hit particularly hard because anyone who's kept in close quarters, right, with the outbreak of of plague is probably going to spread it around and there's going to be, they're more likely to die. So did King Tut die of the plague? Well, people thought that for a while, but no, it doesn't seem like it. So how did he die? Well, this has been the subject of, I don't know how many freaking History Channel, National Geographic, Discovery Channel documentaries. It has been the subject of multiple books ever since the 1990s when they got a better chance to have a closer look at the body. Right. And Bob Breyer, who's made his career off of claiming that King Tut had been murdered, also not a big Breyer fan, uh, he has finally had to admit now that the chances of that happening are are pretty pretty much false. But you do... So this is all based off of the... The very noticeable scar that, or the mark, not the scar, the the wound that is under one of his eyes. Is that correct? On not. The skull? I I, th- I know who you're talking about. But that's not Tut. That's they're, not they're, Tut. No, the, Tut has a lot of trauma to the body. So let's talk a little bit about that. Because when the body was first excavated by Carter, and they opened it up, it was already in pretty much a, a state of of disarray. It was not in good shape. The mummification had obviously been a rush job. Uh, it was not to the level that you would expect a pharaoh to be, uh, undergo. And then there was so much molten resin used in this process that the mummy was stuck to the bottom of the sarcophagus. So Carter actually pulled it out into the sun and let it bake for a while before he could loosen it up, before finally giving up and, and cutting him out in pieces. Oh my God. And then putting him back together. Oh At some point, God. his penis disappeared too. So nobody knows where King Tut's junk is. Um, <laughs> that better not be the episode title. But... Uh, <laughs> Where's King Tut's junk? Um, but you it know, just like dis- like he like accidentally like disintegrates and just flies away. <laughs> he wouldn't have done that. Okay, thankfully. Okay, we all hope anyway. Um, <laughs> that makes me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> but the the body it was already obvious when they first opened it up. Not in good shape. Since right. then, it's been under scrutinous examination, and they have found fractures all over it. So it's led some people to think that he was murdered and he was beaten to death. Others who thought he suffered some sort of chariot involved or some you know, sort chariot of like hearing fall accident. of some kind. Right? Yeah. And we've now been able to, you know, I, I believe 100% at this point, say that there's one fracture on his leg that happened when he was alive. Everything else is postmortem. Postmortem, excuse me. So everything happened after death. Right. After, with the, the shoddy mummification and the way the body was handled afterwards, it's no big surprise. But also the tomb looked a bit ill-prepared for a pharaoh too, right? Because we'll they get weren't to expecting that. him to. We'll get to that. Yeah. yeah. That's coming soon, folks. Uh, but the the health issue 
has finally, I think, been narrowed down to a pretty conclusive understanding that one, he was in bad health most of his life, so his immune system was probably compromised. Two, there does seem to have been some sort of fracture in his bad leg, which we know he already had difficulty standing. And three, they have discovered, along with not just him, but many of the other royal mummies, that uh, there was the presence of malaria in his body at the time of his death. Mm. Malaria is one of the number one killers in the world, and it has been for thousands upon thousands of years, uh, probably well even before recorded history. So with malaria being the likely candidate, I feel like the, the odds of him dying at 19 of natural causes in this sense was actually pretty good. Yeah. Murder, foul play has all been ruled out at this point. Well, and I find it interesting that there's no... I mean, because there's a wasn't there like a good amount of stuff was pretty well recorded, more or less. You got to remember, there are times when you, the Egyptians didn't want to record stuff like that. They had Why? a because they had a good philosophy. <laughs> you record all the good stuff, so you only remember the good stuff. Therefore, only good stuff will happen. Mm. Talk about the bad things, then they become real. They didn't want them to become real. So they and, didn't want to just talk about people dying. They talked about their enemies dying. Okay. And their hands and phalluses being cut off. That, that was a popular topic. <laughs> um, many a temple. That's like the crowning achievement. Is, there a, you is go. a stack of penises and hands. But only of your enemies. not Only of, of your enemies. Not of your friends. Yeah. Every major battle the Egyptians lost, we only know because their enemies recorded it. Wait, wait, <laughs> wait. Just... Maybe it was foul play then because King Tut didn't have a penis. I just... <laughs> I can only imagine <laughs> that happened later. The yeah. penis was there when they found him. Right. I can just Are only you Im sure. I can show you the picture if you want to see it. No, I'm good. I, I can only imagine the speech that was given to these these foreigners before they were mutilated. Is that you will not see the pain now. You will witness the true pain on a slow Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were killed though. Oh, yeah. well, these were just trophies. This was just to show how many they had killed. This is, again, getting off into one of those tangents where it's starting to make me feel like a couple octaves higher. I'm feeling a little comfortable right now. All right, let's back up. Okay, good. Uh, so the, the, the point being, I, I don't feel like King Tut was going to die. Now, I, I get where Briar and other archaeologists were going with this because you had these two advisors very close. One is by the name of I, spelled A-Y, and the other one is Horemheb. Hormheb was a military man. I was a long-time politician that had been involved in the royal family for a very long time. He had connections, married into the family, in fact. So he was the likely person to go and help out the young king. And, you know, both Hormheb and I did a lot during this time because in addition to reversing Akhenaten's policies, they went ahead and moved the capital back to Thebes. Uh, they instituted a huge building project that was going on under the name of King Tut, of course, because he was the king. Uh, there was even some some battle going on, and, and their relations that they had with their foreign powers had fallen to pieces. The kingdom of Mitanni, uh, which was a longtime ally to Egypt, uh, had fallen out of favor, and then Horm had really had to bring everything back into check. So King Tut was doing very little at this time except for being sickly uh, and being married to a sister and trying to produce an heir to his family, which did not result in success. Probably Both. because he was sterile. Well, no, he, he did produce two children, but they were oh. not able to be carried to term. Uh, there were two mummified fetuses found in two very small sarcophagi in the tomb of King Tut. One of them was a stillborn at about six months old. The other was a stillborn at nine months, two terms. So mm. quite likely died during the birthing process. Mm. 
if these were both as the result of his wife, Anaxen in Amun, whose name now changed along with King Tut, <laughs> who was born Tutank Aten, changed his name later to Tutank Amun for obvious reasons, then she, she never attempted it again as far as we know because she, she died without any mention. She just disappeared after his death, uh, quite likely because she was actually trying to get a, a husband and she was sending out messages to you know other po- foreign powers saying, send me... Uh, one of your sons, I need to get married quick because I feel like I'm going to be not on this world for much longer. And again, all of that conversation and what's known as the Armana letters, that I can understand why Bob Breyer might be thinking there's some sort of murder situation going on, right? But the truth is, as soon as the king that was unfavorable was gone, that's when they simply made the changes they want. We know this because they did the same thing with his dad. They Mm. never attempted anything really while the pharaoh was alive. And when they did do that in history, it was usually during periods of extreme, uh, you know, instability in the country Mm. and it was usually because of the line of succession was being fought about inside the family as opposed to outside of the family okay so when king tut dies we know again based on the evidence he has a quick burial and he's just kind of thrown in this tomb and when you see this tomb and you compare it to the other tombs in the valley of the kings it's pretty dinky there's not a lot going on in it it's it's relatively small Mm mm-hmm and there's only one fully decorated chamber. The king himself has everything just kind of thrown all around. I mean, it, it looked like they just kind of put it together in a, in a quick hurry and wanted to move on. In which case, I does move on and becomes king. Uh, and then upon his death, because he was already believed to be quite advanced in age at this time, you have Horemheb who takes over. King Horemheb rules for a few years is relatively ineffective as a, as a leader as well. He was much more effective as an advisor to King Tut. He did a lot more during that time. But he picks for his successor a young military man that he had fought with for some time by the name of Paul Ramesses. Paul Ramesses would later rename himself Ramesses, just Ramesses, and he would become the first king of the 19th dynasty uh, who would lead the Ramesside royal dynasty. And that was a whole new chapter in Egypt's history. Got it. For another podcast. I do <laughs> want to go back for a second and talk about I, because I do remember hearing in a documentary I watched on King Tut that it's unusual because there's a painting of him in the tomb uh, doing the last rites. Correct. For, the opening of the mouth ceremony. Right. Which yeah. is unusual for a person of his position to have done that. And some people have speculated that that was his mea culpa, basically, for supposedly being an orchestration in his death. There are those like Nicholas Reeve who don't even believe that that's I who instead believe it was some sort of transformation that happened. And originally it was actually Nefertiti. Oh, interesting. And the, the, the painting had just been modified to accommodate King Tut. To support mm. the, oh, got it. Yeah. Okay. But again, that's supporting his theory that Nefertiti's buried in the tomb. Uh, when you take that away, yeah, there's all sorts of other theories that yeah. could be come up with. Some people believe that the tomb itself was actually created for I, and because uh, they needed a tomb quickly, because King Tut apparently died unexpectedly, they just kind of took whatever was available and threw them in there. Right. Makes sense. But the story of King Tut's tomb is kind of the last piece to tonight's puzzle, right? And the most famous. And the most famous part of it all, because if it wasn't for the rediscovery of this tomb, Tundak Amun would simply be known by some shards and pottery and some fragments of linen, a couple seals with his name known on it, because up to the discovery of the tomb, that's all they had found. And it's funny because King Tut's tomb, which is designated as King's Valley Tomb 62, is not where the story starts. No. Where does it start, Brian? 
it technically starts in KV54, but we'll go back even further than that. Um, let's talk about George Herbert, who is the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. And, Carnarvon. Uh, he, Carnarvon, thank you. Uh, who was a, a noble uh, who was fascinated with ancient Egypt. And so he traveled to Egypt in 1905 to take photographs. And when he had gotten to the Valley of the Kings, was fascinated. Yeah. And as we know, around this time period, Egyptology was in its kind of its earliest stages, but archaeology in general and interest in ancient Egypt and the ancient world in general had really, really taken on momentum. So while Herbert is in Egypt around this time, he meets an archaeologist by the name of Howard Carter. And uh, Carter was a man who had his own kind of ambitions. He was a man who (laughs) he his his goal was like, you know what? I'm going to find a pharaoh. I'm going to find the tomb of a pharaoh, which was kind of hard because by this point, all of the tombs had been ransacked by grave robbers. It was slim pickings. Yeah. And so. Howard Carter, for lack of a better word, was kind of a jerk. Kind of a jerk, yeah. <laughs> he had a serious Ego? Uh, personality issue. Yes. Well, no, I mean, the the film footage that of him that exists is this guy who's very dapper and very well-dressed, very into himself. Yeah. Well, uh, it's the so, 1920s. Exactly. So it just it kind of plays into that, that narrative a bit. But um, more specifically, in 1907... Carverstein was working in KV-54, and one of his workers finds an artifact that bears the name Tutankhamun on it, which everyone said, what? And they tried for 10, 15 years to find more artifacts, and they didn't really get anywhere, partially because of World War I, partially because the bureaucracy of the Egyptian government uh, made it very difficult for them to get authorization to even be there. So they almost gave up. Uh, in fact, uh, Herbert did want to give up. He wanted to go back to England and just kind of move on with his life. Yeah. Carter convinced him to stay there, to give it one more try. Well, you know, he had been disappointed earlier in his career in Egypt as well, because he had discovered the tombs of both Thutmose I and Thutmose III, um, but they were long since ransacked and robbed and somewhat in the state of disrepair. So, you know, he had also been involved in a few scandals uh, with the uh, with the... Uh, you know, very fledgling Egyptian antiquity service that hadn't been around for very long at this point. Right. So he was really looking for something to reclaim his credibility and to finally put his name on to something that was, well, bigger than his own ambitions. Right. And to be totally fair, Carter got real lucky. Like a lot of his success was due to dumb luck. Yeah. Exhibit A being that his team just happened to discover the artifact that happened to have Tutankhamun's name on it. Beside that, when we get to the fateful day of November, November 4th of 1922, where they unearth a step. Um, the step. <laughs> the step. And they're like, oh, hmm. And within a day, they had pretty much unearthed a staircase that led to an underground portal. Yeah. Like you would find for a tomb. So uh, that was kind of exciting. Yeah. Within a day, they had cleared away most of the debris that was there. Uh, all pretty loose debris, so it was pretty easy to get into. And they discovered a seal above the doorway bearing the cartouche of Tutankhamun, which was really surprising because they had already figured out that, or they had already thought that KV-54 was the the tomb of Tutankhamun. And what they had discovered in that tomb was simply the funerary, some of the funerary leftovers had been transported and moved to that area and were discarded and left around. And that's where their indication of King Tut was there. But Carter never really completely believed it. He thought there must be an actual tomb in yeah. much better condition 
and he 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 finally decided to dig where yeah. he digged and and found that it had actually been overlooked for hundreds of not well actually thousands of years yeah. really that's interesting because the the documentary that i had watched to prepare for this talked about they didn't find the seal until they were already in the tomb in a couple of like the entry rooms and they had to already break through a couple of walls before they saw the seal that bared his name on it um i thought well i could be remembering it wrong it's possible i, I could have sworn there was some sort of indicator though that there was a royal tomb just based i mean well the fact it was in the valley of the kings was kind of a, a dead giveaway yeah uh, but I, I thought there was something above the the door. Maybe there I was could something. That, maybe there was something that just gave the marking away that it was a royal tomb, not just a tomb of like a of a dignitary or someone else. I may the, be remembering it wrong. Yeah. Um, which is more wait, interesting. Wait, 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 wait. Did Eric just admit that he's human? When it comes to Egypt. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what to do with myself. Now. <laughs> Auspicious day. I've like lost my faith in the world right now. No, that that was love was lost a long time ago. Let's be honest here. Yeah, okay. I lost so, my faith in Eric. Well, okay. Give me a second here, folks. <laughs> I was going to. It's take only us on over three thousand years of history that I've attempted to commit to memory. Not saying I've actually done it. Well, let's let's dial it back for a second because what I find fascinating is because I mean here at this point the story kind of has to take into a little bit of a turn into legend and conjecture because. What's more famous than the actual finding of the tomb, other than the fact that, you know, it was the only undisturbed tomb of a pharaoh that we have found uh, in history, aside from that small detail, um, is the the legends that are surrounding what happened to the team that uncovered the tomb. So, Which are also bunk. Very, absolutely. So I, I, I'm just looking over my notes for tonight's okay. episode, because uh, again, I, I don't actually have it all 100% committed to memory. What I'm finding is that they uncover the top portion of the doorway, which was a plastered over doorway with the cartouches stamped on it. So we we're both right. Okay. Got it. We both so they were just the like doubly sure. Like, yeah, we think this is King Tut's tomb. Yeah. Now we're really sure it's yeah. King Tut's tomb. Uh, and they also got really lucky because once they got past that seal, guess what room they found, everybody? The antechamber, which is a nice way of saying the treasure room. Uh, everything that the pharaoh would have needed in the afterlife. Almost. Almost. But they found a lot... Let's just put it... They found a lot well, of good shit in, in that they next did. room. And, and well, what they what they did initially was that they, they kind of broke through the initial doorway uh, through an area where grave robbers had actually entered the tomb previously. Fun fact, folks. King Tut's tomb had been robbed twice in antiquity. So this was not the first time that people had entered the tomb since it had been sealed. There was just so much Yes. They couldn't get... So there were two empty rooms that they had gone to. This may have actually had stuff in it prior well, to them being there. when you go through the first sealed doorway, it leads you into a chamber that brings you down to a second sealed doorway. And that chamber pretty much had nothing in it, uh, except for a bunch of debris that was from the actual grave robbing that had happened beforehand. So they punched through... I just through. love that that's yeah, how you yeah. say debris. It's debris. Debris. I think you put the wrong emphasis. On the wrong syllable. I don't care. So... <laughs> Debris. I'm, I'm going to own it. Instead so of you debris. found lots of debris. Let's go. Continue yes. <laughs> so they punch through a, a little bit of the second door. Uh, again, this is all taking place over a couple of days, right? right. So I'm not trying to depict this 100% chronologically. The unearthing actually happened relatively quickly once they yeah. figured out what they had. But they punch in, they get through, and what they find is a room in a state of disarray, and it's a whole bunch of stuff, and it's mostly stuff that related to, again, yes, the, the, the king's passage to the afterlife, and 
mostly his mummification and everything that happened there. So it wasn't the big chamber yet. It was it was well, it was the biggest chamber there, but it wasn't the most exciting discovery yet to be found. But nonetheless, it was a big deal. Yeah. They realized this is a huge tomb. Yes. Full of stuff. Yes. So they, they get to the antechamber, they find a lot of good stuff, and they find that the only way that they can actually get to the next room is by moving all of it out. So yeah. that's when the media has a field day and a half. So they get, you know, there's pictures, there's film of all these artifacts being brought out. But then they're like, what? That, okay. That, that's it? Furniture? Like, that's what we found? We found Where's the body? Furniture? Where's yeah, exactly. there was a lot of furniture. There was a lot of uh, funerary beds, things like that. Right. Uh, there were about 700 objects in the antechamber, in fact. It was it was crammed to the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, and there's and, still photos of them, of when it was in the tomb, too. Yeah. And they didn't completely excavate that room just yet, but they excavated enough of it to get back to another chamber that was pretty obvious that they could see in the distance. Right. And this was the burial chamber itself. This was the burial chamber. Right. And so they find this massive sarcophagus uh, which starts off as a giant stone box with engravings on it well even before you get to that it's a massive wooden shrine originally and it was so big it took up a huge amount of the room and if you look at it it looks like one of those matryoshka dolls that you see uh you know nesting dolls yeah yeah the little nesting dolls right see this massive gilted wooden shrine with a whole bunch of other shrines (laughs) built into it um, it was a test of honor is what yeah, it was. Yeah, it finally bring you down to the stone sarcophagus, which contained with inside that the the coffins, the the beautifully designed coffins, which all nested th- within each other. Right, and the finally, when they got to that one, we like, holy crap, this weighs a lot, because it was over 300 pounds. Because solid gold. Solid gold with <laughs> precious stone inlays, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Those Egyptians knew how to do it, for sure. I'm just showing Brian and Sarah a, a reconstruction of the outer shrine. Yeah. They actually reconstructed all of the shrines and put them together. And this is a massive box inside mm-hmm. not a huge room. Yeah. So it took up most of the available space that was yeah. in there. Huge. So when they got to that, of course, they were like, holy crap. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Obviously, Carter was really, really quite pleased with himself. Let's dial it back for a quick second, though. Because they, cause this is where... So that happens and everyone's really excited. But then... Weird stuff happens after. And I say weird just because there's a lot of odd coincidences. Folks, Eric and I have always said that like we've we're very scientific when it comes to the documentation of weird things happening. But I think we can at least admit that the rapid succession of deaths that would follow is kind of weird, but there's explanations for all of it. Uh, yeah, but I'll tell you. I mean, the most notable death, of course, is of Lord Carnarvon. Right, who was bitten by a mos- uh, mosquito and died the next day, pretty much. But as we know from King Tut's body, that's not unusual. <laughs> right, because he had, because if he had died of malaria, that would have mm. made complete sense. So He died of an infection brought on by the mosquito bite. Right. So, yeah, he got infected, he had a high fever, and then he was dead within a day or so. He died uh, in his hotel. Uh, there was also mosquitoes, this... Mosquitoes, man. There is no use for them. But they only, suck ass. Not only that, but there was this omen that a snake had... Uh, was it Carter or Carnarvon's uh, home where the snake had worked its way in and then killed his pet bird? Yeah, and that's where I went with the cold open. With oh, that. with the canary, and exactly. I, I, knew, I believe, I exactly I believe it's completely about. fabricated. I don't believe there's any actual evidence right. behind it. And they believe that, that because there was a snake on King Tut's crown, it was like... There was a snake on all their crowns. It was exactly. a god. Exactly. So, Wadjet. 
I'm just saying. No, I, I understand There's that. There's also no. a bird right next to it, neck bet. Dude. And preach- nobody was killed by a vulture. I'm just saying. Dude, preaching to the choir here. I'm on your side. But let's just document the main deaths, okay? 22 people who were directly related to the team died within a short period of the tomb. Uh, Arthur Mace, the leading member of the expedition, fell into a coma and then died of pneumonia within days of the expedition. Uh, a radiologist who had done some work on the body itself uh, died from an unknown cause. Arthur Callender, who is Carter's colleague, also died of pneumonia. Uh, George Gould, who was the one American uh, on the team, died of a high fever about 24 hours after entering the tomb for the very first time. Carnarvon's wife, the Countess Elmina, died of an insect bite back in England. That's pretty much complete coincidence. Um, though there was also the legend of his dog the same day he died, howling and then dropping dead. Don't know what that's all about. Um, there's also the half-brother of the of uh, the Lord Carnarvon, who died of blood poisoning. And then Richard Bethel, who was the secretary of Carnarvon. Also, again, by the way, I'm saying Carnarvon and Herbert. They're the same person. They're the same person. Just yeah. interchangeably. Uh, He's known to history as Lord Carnarvon. Exactly, Lord Carnarvon. Carnarvon's secretary died mysteriously at his club in London, but his father committed suicide, allegedly blaming the curse and jumped off the roof of his London home. So let's let's just let's just clarify all this real quick. Yeah. First of all, did these people die? Well, yes, they, they their deaths were not fabricated. They did all die, and it is very odd that they died within a short period of each other. However, the media was bored. They were looking at this, and they're saying, "There's no story here. It's just a bunch of furniture." It's cool-looking furniture, but it's just furniture. So, because there is an existing Egyptian culture belief that you do not ever enter the tomb of a pharaoh because it is sacrilegious, basically, the idea of of curses was already kind of there. So they just decided to take that existing old legend and ran with it. And they even uh, propagated a a legend of a tablet that said that allegedly said. That uh, death will stretch its wings whoever enters this this temple or something close to that. There was no tablet ever found that had that no. written in hieroglyphs. And let's also clarify that many of the people that you've talked about died not necessarily right next to each other. Many of them died either six months or more or years apart from each other. Many of them died outside of Egypt. Uh, the ones who did die inside Egypt, you know, one of them was shot and assassinated and that had nothing to do with the tomb. It was because he was the governor general of of uh, the Sudan and he wasn't popular. Yeah. <laughs> so if he wasn't going to be shot there, he's going to be shot, shot somewhere else. But also one thing I thought was very interesting was that more recent archaeology has discovered that, hey, guess what? We found that there is some bacteria and viruses that can stay alive for thousands of years. What had happened was, once the chamber had been sealed, these microorganisms that were using air, like you do, had pretty much sucked all the air out of the room. And instead of dying, they just went into this state of like hyperstasis, where they were just hibernating for thousands of years. So when we go in and we break through the wall and let in a bunch of fresh oxygen, we woke them all up. Yeah. So, you so have this, it was just a bacteria curse. Yeah. So you have these ancient viruses and ancient bacteria that your body's immune system is not yes. adjusted to. And that can happen. Yes. But it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> is my point. It can happen. You're quite right. It can happen. And there would have been enough foodstuffs in the tomb to potentially support that. Yes. But if you look at the deaths, you really look at them, the only a few of them really die of totally un, 
explainable causes. One of them was a radiologist who was working with radiology outside of a controlled environment and probably poisoned himself that way. He probably died of radiation poisoning. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't, you know, I know what you're talking about. And I've heard that theory to explain these two. And but by the most way, of these that deaths theory, were totally unrelated to the two. And again, that theory is not in supporting of the curse. That right. was just dumb luck is right. what, I was, was what I'm trying to say. So let's just finish this by saying people die. Yeah. And King Tut died. Also, mosquito bites in yeah. Northern Africa. Yeah. Folks. That happens. Yes. And those mosquitoes tend to carry some nasty sh**. That's two of our bleeps for the episode. I've been keeping track. Was probably just bad luck. Yeah. Really, really just bad luck. But the media decided to just go crazy with it. And well, it's of a fun course, story. It's sensational. It's yeah. a fun story. And who cares? It's pretty much harmless. So much so that, you know, 10 years later, Universal Pictures, or actually not Universal Pictures, a smaller company, released The Mummy, mm-hmm. which wouldn't have happened had it not been for the discovery Correct. of King Tut's tomb. So the media impact of this was huge. Every mummy story ever since then has been derived from the happenings of what happened in, at King Tut's tomb. So if we can bring it back to the tomb for just a moment. Yes. I do want to talk a little bit about the excavation of the tomb, just briefly, because we're running out of time here. And there's all of this has been properly documented, of course. You can all see about it, but you can read about it and see it on television. Some reasonably good documentaries. Some of them are crap, but most have been okay. Uh, the, the tomb took a good three years before it was completely excavated. So they definitely took their time. And in doing so, they moved in slowly and in stages and properly photographed and cataloged pretty much everything that came out of the tomb. It now encompasses most of the first floor of the Cairo Museum in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, The sarcophagus to King Tut himself wasn't actually raised until February 12th of uh, 1924. So a good year and a few months after the initial discovery of the tomb. And it was a big deal. Uh, And it took a lot of work to get that to to happen. In fact, Carter was actually more or less asked to leave the project for a short time, but was able to come back uh, to continue his work. Again, he was not an easy person to work with. He was a very, very difficult person, and he made things difficult for people around him. When he did come back in January of 1925, he was able to complete more or less what he what he had started, and it took him uh, about nine months to, to do that. So you'll find that by, well... I don't know. I mean, what the primary work that he wanted to do, a lot of it was done in 1926 and began a lot of the simple stuff of just removing, photographing, cataloging, removing, photographing, and cataloging. Right. And so that by the 1930, a full eight years after everything was done, finally the last pieces had been removed. A right. lot of the major work, primarily the actual removal of, of Tut's body and photographing of that, that happened within just a couple of years. Yeah, it took two years before Carter could actually examine the body. Yeah, a lot of the later work that then took up a lot of it, the busy time that he spent in the tomb, you know, that took a full eight years to do it. But most of his primary big work that he wanted to get done happened early. Yeah. Uh, he would die in, in 1939, uh, and he would die not a particularly wealthy person. Uh, he had gained a lot of fame and notoriety, but again, his, his personality made it difficult for him to really profit from that. Uh, and... If you want to experience King Tut's tomb, you can do it. Of course, you've got to go to Egypt to actually see it. You've got to go to the Cairo Museum to see what was inside of it. But if you were fortunate like I was, you had a chance a few years back to see it when it was on uh, tour. 
mm-hmm. uh, throughout the United States and other parts of the world. Uh, King Tut and the Golden Age of the Pharaohs went around, and it was a beautiful exhibit, not nearly as large as the one that had happened in the 1970s, where pretty much oh, that all was, the really good stuff came out. That was huge. Yeah. That was like, that was a big King Tut revival time. That's that's when Steve Martin did his, exactly. did his sketch. Right. My dad's got a book from that tour. He's got like a big coffee table book that he got. Yeah. Seeing that tour. I've got my own version of it from the later time. Mm-hmm. I remember I went with Martha when it was here in, in San Francisco. And we went for a, a trip up there with some of her family who were in town from Mexico. And I brought with me, you know, like six of my family members plus Martha. So eight of us. And by the time I had finished my three hours there, I actually had about 22 people. Because I had gathered a crowd in my explanations of oh what gosh. I was talking about. They had actually, some of them returned their audio tours they bought. Others walked away from the docents who were there and came to me instead. Oh my God. And it was terrible because the people who were staffing the event all had these little earpieces in. And whenever they had a question they didn't know, they walked some guy who was Googling it in the back. Oh my God. So they just forgot him and came over to me. And I led around this huge group of people. Uh, throughout the Tut exhibit and was one of the proudest moments of my life. That is so funny. Um, it was a lot of fun. I had a good time with that. And, you know... You're in the wrong profession. You know that, right? Oh, I'm working to become a teacher. It's okay. Happen. <laughs> uh, I will kind of end on this in saying that, you know, even though the king himself may not have been the most significant figure in Egyptian history, even though the tomb in terms of Egyptian tombs is relatively small and not terribly impressive... Um, what he left behind to us as a society today is what's most groundbreaking. The fact that it was the most complete burial of an Egyptian king ever discovered, that it brought so many unanswered questions to light, that it gave us a glimpse into one of Egypt's most famous and convoluted royal families. And it still continues to excite people around the world to be interested in ancient history is a legacy that I think is well-deserving. And it makes me happy to know so many people recognize King Tut, even if they don't know all the facts, even if this is the first time what they're hearing is something that is pretty in-depth and significant. I'm glad that it's still a figure for Egypt. It's Mm -hmm. still a figure for something that I'm very passionate about and that I love. Uh, and And I know it will continue to do so. And I hope that the recent activity in the tomb Mm -hmm. has another revitalizing effect and that you know folks no matter their age whatever generation they belong to that they they too have a revitalization in ancient egyptian history that's my hope egypt's pretty cool it is badass i love it in fact you know what it's the there's three yeah yay history that's the first time i intentionally used one of those on the podcast but it was worth it nice so uh let's uh Get into some feedback, shall we? This week in listener feedback. Our first feedback uh, since recording comes from The Hallovex. His subject is science friction. It says, hi again, guys. <laughs> well, we, it was one of our episodes. I a, know. A I'm just laughing because I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, hi again, guys. Apologies that my more recent feedback is always regarding earlier and earlier podcasts, but I am working through them in reverse chronological order. My very own time travel. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I'm not going to bang on that for too long, uh, as you are 100% right that the topic of science fiction is way too huge to cover in its entirety. Uh, that being said, I was very surprised that there was no mention of, to my recollection, of the big three when it comes to science fiction in the latter 20th century. Arthur C. Clarke, 
Isaac Asimov, and Robert A. Heinlein, who are absolutely essential. We agree with that. Yep. Arthur C. Clarke predicted within high level of accuracy the advent of the computer and it becoming the most pervasive element in our lives. And of course, he wrote 2001. So he deserves, absolutely deserves a mention for that. Yeah, reason. the other books in the series, not so much. Although 2010 was pretty good. The rest of it was crap. Right. Sorry. It was. Uh, Read it yourself. You'll agree. He also says that there is also a very British subgenre of sci-fi comedy that I would have loved to have heard your opinions on, i.e. Douglas Adams, who wrote a little book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, just, just a little book. Nothing, Nothing big. It's freaking Nothing huge. Big. No, Nothing it's not big. freaking huge. It's a short story. But what's significant about it is the <laughs> series that it spawned. Yeah. Right. And that last book, the last book, the sixth book of the series, I'm struggling to get through it right now. I've been putting it off since 2009. Obviously, it's not written by right. Adams because he's dead. I'm just saying I'm having a hard time. Yeah. He also mentioned other classics that Eric is very familiar with, such as Red Dwarf. Mm-hmm. Oh, baby. Uh, Hyperdrive and even Spaceballs to some degree. Spaceballs! Spaceballs, the flamethrower. The kitties will love it. <laughs> well, you know, in defense, it was a huge episode. We wanted to touch on the ones that weren't nearly as well-known yeah, we because we could, early, spend, yeah, yeah. we could spend a lot of time we were it. talking more or less early science fiction we really didn't dabble in 20th century at I all mean, Asimov's pretty early yeah but we we didn't get quite that early right or quite that late into the yeah I um, got you yeah and, that made sense to me yeah and as he mentions it's a huge topic so um but he would like to know if we want to do more specific sci-fi ones like sci-fi writing sci-fi on tv and sci-fi film yeah, history we could do something like that we gotta like we've gotta be pretty good about parsing out the pop culture ones but i'm always down for pop culture history so i am too so yeah as long as we uh, as long as we're good about splitting them up eh, i can take it or leave it shut up eric <laughs> uh that being said <laughs> he closes with anyway i am loving everything anyway and i just want to have these chats in person i must look like a right freak when i am agreeing or arguing with you on the bus uh, so, based on your choice of language here, I'm going to assume you're from the United Kingdom, uh, especially since you know Red Dwarf. So, either that or you're just a brutophile. Um, but please, Anglophile. tell us where you're from, because we have a map we're working on. It's, so, it's Anglophile. Yes. And do Anglophile. you say debris by chance? I'm just Debris. Curious. Debris. Thank you. I an Anglophile. Thank you. The word escaped me. Yeah. <laughs> I like debris. That's okay. Uh, Sarah, you said you had some feedback you wanted to share. I do. Um, good old Benjamin decided to actually heed our call and get offer some uh dictator nicknames for me um (laughs) (laughs) for when i do take over the world um dictator tot was one of them but (laughs) apparently he stole that um i don't care i like it ashlanonymous rex and uh but then again sarah also means princess which is true it does mean princess in hebrew right but if you but if you know me Princess doesn't really quite no, fit. No, no. Maybe Princess Leia. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe Princess of Darkness. Yeah. We've anyway, already established so, that the Antichrist. Yeah. So I've already, I've actually, what I've decided that I think I want my dictator name to be is um, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Benevolence. Hmm. Yeah. I, and that hmm. way I kind of like sneak in there. I just seem like a, a spiritual uh, guide. Maybe somebody who who's who you know uses their wisdom to counsel the world and then slowly takes over. And I think that's the route I'm going to go. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Ryan's <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, so this one comes from a friend of ours, Jeremy, who has uh, he's been on the episode, he's been on, on the, the, the show the, before, yeah. and and you know we've we've helped him out with uh, some some advertising in the past and all that good stuff. 
Uh, and he says, I saw this story about Hepshatsut in the news the other day, and it made me want to ask two questions. Did Hepshatsut have a have the title Pharaoh, or was she just uh, did she just have a lot of power? Um, and it looks like we might have a female president uh, of the United States in the next year. Uh, what are some of the most powerful female leaders throughout history? Well, I'm going to answer one of these now, and I, I think um, I want to say we've actually touched on women in power throughout history before. I know we definitely talked about Bodicea and uh, other very powerful female uh, leaders in the past. So I, I believe, Jeremy, there's an episode in the back catalog out there for you. Yeah, it was about badass women is what yeah. we called it. But uh, Hapshatsut definitely did use the title of Pharaoh, which, you know, even putting her name inside of a cartouche and having her her, her royal name, uh, Ma'at Kara, was, was, you know, out there for the public to see. So it was a big, big statement and one of the reasons why they did that systematic erasure of all of her you know, temples and tombs in her name, wherever they could find it. Uh, so not only did she have a lot of power, but she also had the actual name and authority behind it, uh, which makes her, again, right. a badass. There's a term that they use in more recent monarchies where there's not just the queen, they call the term female king, right? And they, it's used specifically for other very powerful female monarchs. Uh, queen Elizabeth I of England, uh, Queen Isabella of Spain, they were all very like, they had the chutzpah, behind it uh they didn't want to just let their advisors do their job for them so oy vey indeed yeah one of many uh we also got one from leif hi leif uh leif is just letting us know he's from brisbane australia yay i love australia on the list we have one from courtney she had actually asked some advice from Mm -hmm. us and gave us some really old feedback on one of her really really early episodes from let's dial it back a bit regarding the monoliths she just wanted to let you know that it reinvigorated her nerdiness and for ancient history and anthropology so uh, we'll, we'll address the uh, the advice on a personal level because it's it's more like asking like advice for what she wants to do. And we think that's something that should be just between the, between us and her. Why can't we talk about it on the thing? It didn't say to be personal, right? Well, no, I just want to respect her privacy. That's all. I think actually doing the advice out loud would be kind of cool because I think other people could benefit from. Can we make it into a segment? What do you mean? Like Dear Abby, Dear Nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> and now... We get to a new segment we're trying out for the podcast that we like to call Dear Nerdy. It's cute. I like it. It's cute. She says, I am nearing the end of my secondary schooling and considering my college education. I have always had a deep passion for archaeology, anthropology, history, and sociology. But many people in my life have not taken this seriously or have warned me against it because it doesn't pay well. Screw them! I... (laughs) I know from listening to Nerds on History that Eric used to work in a, for a museum. And I did not get paid well. I would like to ask, was that job fulfilling enough to consider making a career out of it? And would it be beneficial as uh, someone, with, someone with experience in the field to have some sort of post-secondary school education? Well, first of all, if you're going to go into history, uh, it, yes. is, it is an absolute requirement yeah. to get into that. Um Eric, I mean, you actually have the museum mm-hmm. experience, so... Yeah, I spent 10 years in the museum industry, and I loved the museum industry. I, I love it to this day. I think it's an absolutely great choice for yourself if you want to help make a difference in the world. There's not a whole lot of money in it. There's not a whole lot of money in a lot of really great things that are out there, but you can make a living, and you can do quite well for yourself. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to be the richest person on the planet, right? You don't have to, you know, be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You don't no. have to do that. You can have a fulfilling life. And I, I loved my time in museums. I left for reasons 
not nothing to do with finances. It, it had more to do with professional um, disagreements over the way that certain things are being run. And I feel like if you can get with a museum that has a great mission statement and a great philosophy and they stick behind it and they, they want to help really preserve the history that they're a part of. And not only that, but make it you know, available to the community on the widest way possible. Then I feel like you're going to make a, a great choice for yourself. Yeah. You know, kind of speaking from somebody who also picked a, picked a college major that was not necessarily most practical. Um, you know, I chose, I chose English and, you know, the option was always there to go into academia and mm-hmm. to become a professor, become mm-hmm. a teacher, that kind of thing. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If, In fact, if you love yeah. learning, that's the way to go. Yeah. And there's, you know, parts of times where, you know, I felt if I liked kids more, I'd probably be yeah. wanting to, I'd probably want to be a teacher. But, you know, and you never know what path you're going to end up taking as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so I say pursue your passion in your major and do the do the work and if you want to go into your master's program and you want to do research and and stuff like that freaking do it after college you you might go a different path i know somebody who got her master's in history and now she works in in tech she works as she works in sales at tech yeah right that's what i do (laughs) and then and then you know i as an english major i went and worked i'm working fundraising and nonprofit administration stuff so it's like it's you never know what path you're going to take but it's accomplishing something and doing the research and having fun and hell enjoy your 20s (laughs) and i mean i you said a lot of what i was going to say but i mean i i have a ba in theater i have the least practical uh degree of anybody in the room right now even some of the communications degree is better off than you yeah (laughs) really truly and believe me i even considered communications as a major at one point (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think liberal arts is yeah. right on par with you. Here, here's, <laughs> look, yeah, look, and, and I have an AA in liberal arts too. So, Zing! yeah, so there you go. Spent a lot of time in community colleges, folks. Let me just speak from the heart and speak quite plainly. Uh, pursuing your passion is never going to be easy. I'm saying that now because I left the day job to pursue my passion for professional acting work. Doesn't matter what field you're into, if you love it, nothing's going to stop you from doing it. And yeah, it's disappointing when the people you care about and the people you want support from will kind of eschew your ideas because it's not practical. Very little in life worth living is practical. Is and, the way the way I see it. And the best time to do these sorts of things to pursue your, pursue your passions is when you're young. And you still have that yeah. really good safety net of your family. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, not to say I want, not to say that you should be a mooch, but it's really, no, yeah, it's helpful. It's less important that nowadays that you, what you got your BA in more that you just got your BA. As Sarah said, you may find you hate working in that industry once you get into it. But if you truly love it, the reason why other people don't think it's practical is because they could never figure out a way to make money from it. You know where people are starting to bit find pod, uh, sorry, find history lucrative, podcasting. There are other history podcasts out there that are be, that are doing great work, better work than we'll ever do. Truth, truth be told, we are a tertiary level podcast. We are good for people who are not into history who want to get into it. There are people who are producing history podcasts who are doing lots of research from primary sources and really going diving in deep and doing great stuff. They have more time than we do. Exactly. Well, it's because they're <laughs> academics. They yeah. have the ability to do it. Yeah. And by the way, if you want to teach graduate work for academia for English and history, it's hard. It's also extremely competitive. 
So just know that going in. It's extremely competitive. It's so gratifying if you do it and you do it right. Yeah. And getting, I'm sorry, getting into into research work is just so flipping cool. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll just issue a final thought on this. Please. Uh, I feel like, you know, you can always pursue your, your dreams in a non-official capacity as well. I work with a lot of volunteer organizations that are important to what I mm-hmm. find important in life. And even though I don't make any money off of them, I fulfill that that piece of me while I have my day job where I am making the money off of. So, you know, there's always a way to pursue what you love in life. You just need to find it. Yeah. In short, we've given you five different reasons for you to do this. So, so do it. Do it. <laughs> And don't blame us if you fall into poverty. Yeah, if it fails miserably, whoopsies. We are not paid professionals. We are just people with some life experience. We're yeah, we're talking from our own life experiences. Real talk right now. Yeah, where we all I mean, admittedly, maybe none of us are doing the thing that like right now we're not doing the thing that we said we were gonna be doing by this age. But yeah, everybody's life path is different and it's really surprising the twists and turns that you make. And you can still wind up in a really good place. Yeah, and the number of children you produce as well. (laughs) Well, (laughs) keep it in your pants is what we're saying. (laughs) Moral of the story, don't be Eric, keep it in your pants. (laughs) Or be Eric and have awesome kids. Yep, hit the books, not the bars. Yeah. (laughs) So if you guys want to, I don't know, ask us for some advice or you want to uh, give us your feedback on new episodes, past episodes, whatever, you can do so by going to uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, or you can just go to our website, nerdonomy.com. Click that Talk to Us button and uh, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. And when you do it, please tell us where you're from. I'm working on that map. You can also check out past episodes while you're there. Look at our blog. Look at our merch page. Give us a donation if you're feeling so generous. It would be pretty cool. But really, the most important thing that you can do for us is shout us out to your friends through social media or just give us a review on itunes stitcher whatever your podcasting venue of choice is and we'd love it help us spread the word of nerd yes indeed so nerds it is that time so until we meet again stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com bye goodbye Seriously? Nothing happened? You did no research? No. That's... I mean, I didn't do any research, but I didn't talk. (laughs) That's just not fair. Yeah, well, it's me. Can you help me troubleshoot Windows? Okay.